it, and then I'm going to move my chair. But you can do whatever you want. This is your stage. <laughs> uh, have you started Stranger Things yet? No. I have not either. I mean, I've like, not the new season. Yeah. We've both watched Stranger Things. We have been to Hawkins. Yeah. That's right. No. Did you know there's a Stranger Things pop-up store in the, the Grapevine Mall? Mm -hmm. Like what even? Like what? A pop-up what now? A store. Uh, so it was described as a Stranger Things pop-up, so we went with the Neals. Oh, yeah. Nice. And uh, we were expecting it to be a little bit more, what's the word I want? Event? It's not. Mm. It's they painted like the Christmas light thing on one wall, and they, there's just a bunch of Instagram like photo ops. I feel like that's most of the world nowadays but is then it's all, Instagram photo ops. Then it's all store. Like it's all here is a bunch of exclusive, merch. yeah. So. so it's neat if you happen to be at the Grapevine Mall. It's worth stopping in. Yeah. But I don't know that I would make an entire trip. Yeah, that's a little fun. Especially folks who are not in the, in the Metroplex. Like, not worth it. Our Arizona and Boston folks, not worth it, okay? <laughs> so does that mean that we're going to borrow that idea and have a Catalyst pop-up? Store? Yeah. Where they it sell is. your album? And what else? I don't know. What, no. Some shirts? All the, all, the, all the merch, all the special. We can get some stickers and various and your album pulled from. Okay, who has an album here? <laughs> <laughs> your album. A DVD your of your books, music videos? Over here, best-selling author over here. Easy. Get, get That's it. not best-selling. That's false advertisement, but I'll take good, it. Good-selling good author over here? Uh, so you have not... You have not played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, there was that one time that I started and then flaked. Yes, I remember that. But other than that, no. Other than that, no. Because um, that that features apparently. This is not really spoilers for Stranger Things season four because I've not seen it yet. But from what I understand, they remembered that those kids all played D and D, um, which was a plot they point from the while. first season. Yeah. yeah. So they brought it back and then they play into the satanic panic of the eighties. Which I'm assuming you're not quite that's, old enough for. That's that's a fun name. I mean, I'm I'm kind of familiar with it, but I didn't yeah. know that that was the name. Where like of it. everyone in the name. '80s thought that there were satanic cults yeah. everywhere, and there were not. Are you but, sure? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. They they figured it out. Uh, I I was a kid who loved all that stuff. Like I bought all the Goosebumps books, and my poor long-suffering mother thought for sure that I was wandering down the path of darkness, and so yeah. And she was right. <laughs> Look at me now. Um, but yeah, I, when I asked if I could play D&D, &D, she was incredibly worried. Uh, but let me do it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just genuinely curious, like the process for the things that get vilified and the things that don't, you know? Because that's, D&D yeah. did, even though it's basically a safe way for nerds to hang out and tell stories together, you know? Exactly. Uh, with, with like a fantasy skin that is so blatantly a ripoff of Lord of the Rings that they had to call the hobbits like most things are. halflings, right? I mean, yeah. And obviously we know Christians love Lord of the Rings. So That always, uh, my brother and I talk about that a lot, uh, the difference between the love for Lord of the Rings, which by the way, well-deserved, amazing. Yeah, sure, uh, no shade on Lord <laughs> of the Rings at all. But, yeah. but by Christians and then Harry Potter is evil incarnate. Yeah. Um, at least that's how it was in, with my parents and those circles. 
I was a youth pastor when that was all going on, so I was the youth pastor who would stand in the midnight line at Barnes & Noble with my youth to buy the next book that came out. So, yeah. whoops. Oopsie. <laughs> I guess. Not oops, because those books are great. And but, also, yeah. uh, sorry to say, Lord of the Rings also has uh, witches and wizards and things. It does. Yeah, and magic. There's some magic dun, 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 in it. But it's an allegory. It's a metaphor. But that, that's, I mean, Sonia's going to be talking about this in a minute, because if you didn't know, Sonia's preaching today, which we're very excited about. But, I mean, she op she's going to open with talking about that, right? Like, people who are from the wrong side of the tracks, and the people we're told not to engage with, and, and I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm always fat, especially when, as you point out, like, it can be so contradictory. Very. You know? Um, yeah, I, I wonder why we don't interrogate more deeply the people that we're told are off limits or are bad or, or whatever. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so all of that to say, come play D&D with me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I got you. That, that was a long commercial for Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Anyway, just kidding. It is time for worship to begin. So I'm, I'm actually, again, I'm not preaching today, so I'm just going to hand it over to y'all and then Sonia's going to take it from here. So uh, I'll see you guys in a little bit. Have you heard the saying about the other side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks? Usually the saying refers to the poor, undesirable, and dangerous part of town. That distinction of town usually classified the people from that particular part of town as coming from a poor family and possibly seeing the people as less than. This type of classification does not address how the people are possibly disenfranchised, excluded, and kept out of the right side of the tracks. And have you ever been told to stay clear of a certain area in your town or city? Have you ever been told not to hang around a certain type of person? It's no fun to be excluded. Have you ever been excluded from events or activities for a particular reason? Have you been denied access or service because of the color of your skin or gender? I think we've probably seen um, movies or read books where people are categorized by social class or ethnic and religious backgrounds. We've probably heard of culture wars where engagement with a certain group of people should be avoided. We might have been taught how to defend ourselves from the influence of other beliefs that are not like our own. Whatever it may be, there's an us versus them mentality. In the passage today, the people of Athens, Greece, were avoided by Jewish people. The Jewish people were intentional not to interact with the Gentiles because they were unclean based on the teachings in the Torah. Maybe we have done this saying, where we do not engage with others in order not to tarnish or make ourselves less than holy. We will discuss how God calls us to dismantle unhealthy beliefs that alienate those who have religious teachings different from the Christian faith and how God calls us to have authentic engagement where he is already present. The Easter tide, we're in the season of hope, the time between Easter and Pentecost, between Resurrection and God's gift to us of the Holy Spirit. Our series is called Reconnected. We're asking what it looks like to be connected both to God and to his creation 
to which God calls us? What are the practices, attitudes, and orientation God calls us to and gifts us that enables us to be a church that engages and cares about the world around us? For these questions, we're in the book of Acts, which recounts the beginning of the church. How did we go from a group of scared people who fled from the authorities when Jesus was arrested to a group that faced down persecution and fiercely spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the world around us? We began by reflecting on the impossibility of our call to make Jesus visible in the broken and breaking world. God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us accomplish our calling. Then we explored what it means to gather together in a way that orients us outward from ourselves to the larger world, especially those who are marginalized, oppressed, and vulnerable. Last week, we saw that God calls us to engage those who are part of our faith tradition but may not know Jesus. Today, I want to invite you to explore the opposite extreme. How do we share Jesus' good news with people who are not Christian and who may not share some of our basic beliefs about who God is? Let us remove the temptation to criticize and judge. Let us listen and cultivate new relationships with others to help them to know God better. Turn with us to Acts 17. We've explored the past few weeks what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus. If you have been in the church for some time, one of the things we've probably been told is how to defend your Christian faith. We might have been told what to say or what specific biblical passage to use in order to make a clear defining statement of our Christian faith. In almost any debate forum, we want to win our argument and to be right. In turn, we want the other person, the non-believer, to see how wrong they are in their argument, their belief, and whatever they have been taught. We think that in our defense, we will win over the non-believer, the sinner. In our attempt of this type of sharing the gospel, gospel, we end up demoralizing or demonizing the other person. I can understand that you are not like the other person. We are all different, unique, and we have various backgrounds. There are certain types of people that we are more comfortable to be around. There are others we tend to avoid or are told not to associate with. In the passage today, the Jewish people purposely avoided the unclean Gentiles. It was what they were told. They are only following the Torah that tells them to remain clean and not to defile themselves. Here comes Paul, a Jew who is educated and formed in Torah teachings. Paul goes to Athens and begins to interact with whoever he meets each day in the marketplace. In biblical times, Athens was one of the places known for Greek learning and culture. People there were inquisitive and took the time to learn. 
Athens was also a polytheistic society where they worshipped more than one god and had many deities. The Athenian community reflected their beliefs and there were many idols. Athens also had philosophical schools. The two types of philosophical schools um, are highlighted in Acts 17. It's the Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans sought after a restrained kind of pleasure that was free from anxiety and mental pain. Epicureans were against how gods and death brought about fear and not peace of mind. The idea like all good, all is good in moderation would probably be their thing. Stoics believe virtue was the highest good and ethic um, to help bring about peace of mind. Stoics theme would probably be life happens, remain calm. I want to explain that highlighting Greek culture shows how vastly different the people are from those who were Jews and Gentile God worshippers. We are not going to fixate so much on Greek culture. We read in Acts 17 that Paul is in Athens, and since Athens is known for polytheism, it's interesting why Paul would be in distress that their city is full of idols. This isn't the first encounter Paul has had with Greek, with the Greek community. Paul was a Greek-speaking Jew from the Greek city Tarsus. Paul dispels the notion to avoid the Gentiles, those who are part of the community of many gods and idols, the sinners. Dr. Willie Jennings' commentary of the book of Acts explains how a place feels different when you are surrounded by idols. Idols mark the boundaries of difference, the walls of separation, and the point of divine hatred. Paul does what Jesus does. He does not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. In the passage today, Luke narrates Paul coming to Athens, not for the righteous. Paul comes from a monotheistic religion. People who believe in the God of Israel did not participate often with polytheistic communities of Athens. Paul is intentional of interacting with the Gentiles and is talking to anyone who will listen in the Athens marketplace about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul does not intrude on the community of Athens. Paul spends time in the local context and speaks in the language the people speak. Some of the people Paul engages with are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans and Stoic philosophers decide to take Paul to Mars Hill to meet in front of their council. Let us read Paul's address to the council on Mars Hill. So, Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. As for, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and sense and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in the man-made temples. 
and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he he satisfied every need. From one man he created all the nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of you own poets have said, we are his offsprings. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent from their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. The word of the Lord. We are aware that Paul is in a place that is much different and his beliefs, and what he has been taught. Paul takes three days to acclimatize himself to the community of Athens. He already knows Greek language, and he did grow up in the Greek city of Tarsus. Think about an interaction with someone who speaks the same language as you versus when you don't speak the same language. Communication is easier when you know the language of the people. Paul associated himself to Athens and intentionally interacted with Jews, the Gentile God worshippers, and non-devout people. Interaction with people is easier when we are familiar with their customs and traditions. Unlike other Jewish people, Paul crosses the tracks to meet the people where they are. Paul does not tell the people to come to the synagogue where he met with the Jew and the Gentile God worshippers. Paul goes to the marketplace. Right there, Paul reaches out to the people. Paul does not display a build-it-they-will-come type of evangelism. The type of interaction is not We are taking Jesus to the people. It is, we are helping the people to know God better. There were mixed reviews by the people of Athens. Some saw Paul as a babbler. Some were curious and wanted to learn more. Paul was taken into custody and brought to the Athenian council. And Paul begins his speech by acknowledging that the Athenian audience is very religious. Paul's speech does not begin in a sarcastic tone or insult. We read, Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had the inscription on it, To an unknown God. 
Paul starts with discussing their idols because that is what they know. They have been taught about gods from their great culture. But there was something stirring in their hearts and minds where not all believed in Greek gods and followed Greek religion. Epicureans were against how gods and death brought about fear and not peace of mind. Stoics believed virtue was the highest good and ethic to help bring about a peace of mind. More than one person believed there was another god whom they had yet to know. Hence, an altar was set up for this unknown god. In the historical context, Paul simply states the facts. How we interpret it today is sometimes in a negative context where polytheistic societies are put down for not knowing or have, having been revealed of who the unknown God is. Paul does not think they are ignorant in having no knowledge. The type of ignorance that is related to this passage is the Athenian people um, are, do not know and are being are and are unaware of the God of Israel. He certainly doesn't speak down to them. Something is unknown until we learn about it. We know that we are not floating around the earth. We have an idea or maybe a hunch that something is keeping us grounded. I don't know how many of you learned about gravity. Usually the first story we hear is when Isaac Newton was sitting under an apple tree and an apple hit him on the head. It was this experience that helped him to come up with the law of gravity. It's a cute story to introduce us to the laws of motion. There are things that you also feel and know to be true. You can't explain and don't know until you learn about it or have a breakthrough. But the fact that you can't explain in words doesn't mean gravity doesn't affect you or that you don't know gravity in some intuitive level, on some intuitive level. This is Paul's claim about the Athenians and any non-Jewish people's knowledge of God. They were interacting with God out of unfamiliarity or lack of information. But now Paul has come so that they can name this God. Let's pause right now and celebrate the God we have come to know because someone told us. Paul explains God is always present. Paul is walking around Athens and sees a shrine to an unknown God. I feel that the people of Athens felt the presence of a different God than the 12 prominent Greek gods. They couldn't explain it and acknowledge a God that they had yet to know. Paul explains of the unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth.
Paul tells the people of what we would call God's previent grace. Previent grace is God stirring our hearts to accept his love. God's grace does not force humans to make a decision. God's love and is present to even those who don't know him. In the passage, the people are aware of the presence of God. The relationship is not yet fully formed. Acts 17 verse 27 explains that we perhaps feel our way towards God and find him. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. Is Paul quoting Stoic poet Epidennis? As some of your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. Paul quotes Artua of Sicilia and Epicurean. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. There is a connection to the Creator that Paul explains and who this God is to the world at large. The dialogue and framework of knowing God is not far. God lives and moves. God helps to understand in understanding and reveals Himself in meaningful ways. All interaction with the people of Athens is not a missionary or ministry tactic. Paul is led by the Spirit and trans is that transformed him. He tells of a God who seeks out the people, even every human nation. Now that Jesus has come, we can know God better. God moves us from an unknown God to a God who loves. Dr. Jennings asks, what do you say to those radically outside yourself, radically different from you? What do you say to those whose religions and rituals you have been trained to loathe? Each culture and ethnic group has a context of how they name and understand God. Paul did not demonize the people of Athens. He merely proclaimed, people of Athens. I see that you are very religious in every way. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. I have sat through many preachings and Christian teachings of this biblical passage that has demonized my Navajo culture, more broadly Native American and indigenous culture. Paul expresses that God is always present, even among the Athenian people who are surrounded by idols. Native American indigenous cultures do not have an idol of creator or great spirit. Lame Deer, who was a Lakota medicine man, described the great spirit. Is not like a human being. He is a power. That power could not be in a cup of coffee. The great spirit is no old man with a beard. Native Americans also believe that this great spirit moves among us like the wind or a breath. Creator is described as Dian in the Navajo language. Historically, missionaries and Christianized Navajos describe God as Dian God and will say specifically God of the Bible. 
I relate to Dian as understanding God as holy creator and being aware of Dian's spirit is present in all of creation. Many indigenous theologies have been dismissed due to the force um, theologies by westernized Christians. Sadly, it's the dominant ethnocentric group which determines what is right or wrong in the theology and lived-out work of God. The fruit of westernized Christians' dismissal has been death and destruction, not the fruit of the Spirit. How different would the outcome be if we spoke as Paul? What if, rather than Navo- condemning Navajo spirituality as godless, Western missionaries had seen that God was already at work among the Navajo as Dian. What if they had been able to affirm Navajo values like the importance of connection between humanity and creation? The Navajo teachings of finding each day the balance of goodness, harmony, and peace. We identify with Jesus as God's agent of judgment would you rather be called the heathen or God's offspring? Let us not put down any people who are also God's offsprings. Will another door be shut and another wall be built to protect your religious and cultural order? Why do we deny God's presence? We acknowledge God's creation and his spirit is present, yet we fail to acknowledge that God is already at work stirring our hearts and the hearts of those who don't even realize it's God. In Paul's naming of God, in our naming of God, we name who we are. Acts 17 shows that God does not favor one group of people over another and wants to show mercy to all. God is already present with all peoples of the world, already working among them. So how do we remove the wall of separation we have built? Can we acknowledge that whatever hatred and judgment we feel for others comes from us, not from God? Can we affirm that God is working among them, inviting us to join them and point out where God is at work? Christians have a long habit of pointing out the difference between our faith and this spirituality of culture. But Paul didn't start there. Paul began by insisting that God is always present, even when we don't know it. Even among people who don't realize, God knows us long before we knew God. The presence of the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts, and it's the active presence of God within our lives that continually knocks and whispers to all people of divine love and mercy. Uh, friends, what, what strikes me about Sonia's message today is uh, the deep humility that is at the core of her invitation to us. Um, that statement that she just made, that, that God knew us long before we ever knew God. And so as we approach the communion table today, I want to invite you in that spirit of humility. Um, what makes us worthy to approach this table is not uh, how many theological answers we have or even how well we know God. Uh, we know that because the people who were gathered around the first communion table still deeply misunderstood who Jesus was and what he had come to do. We know that because of how they reacted after the meal when they betrayed him and abandoned him and denied that they even knew him. 
And so uh, what, what makes us worthy to approach this table is that God has declared that it is so, that God has declared that we are God's offspring, as Paul said, quoting not scripture, but a Greek philosopher. What makes us worthy is that Jesus set a place for us and invited us. And so all that's required for us to come to this table today is to say yes to that invitation. Uh, to say yes in humility, knowing that we do not know all of who God is, uh, and, and we never will. That's, that's the beauty of worshiping an infinite God. Um, that we are not required to have a complete comprehensive understanding of God. We're required only to respond in faith. And so I want to invite you uh, to receive this communion meal today. And it's okay if you still have a lot of questions about who God is. It's okay if you still have a lot of questions about uh, religion and how Christianity relates to everything else in the world and all of that. Um, again, Paul's invitation to the Athenians was come and learn more. And Jesus' invitation to us is any who are thirsty, come and drink. Any who are hungry, come and eat of the bread uh, of life. And so as we approach communion here at Catalyst, uh, I'm going to invite you into a time of reflection and prayer before we receive that meal together. Uh, I'm going to give you some questions to reflect on, and then uh, after that, I'm going to pray for all of us together, and then we're going to receive the communion meal together. Uh, so here's the first question I would like you to consider. Where in my week, just think, you know, think about the week that you, know, that you have, your kind of your typical week, where do I least expect to find God at work? Now, how can I make space for the Holy Spirit to shape my perspective this week? You know, for Paul, that looked like walking around Athens for three days and keeping his mouth shut, even though he was offended, right? So what does it look like for me to make space for the Holy Spirit to shape my perspective this week? finally, how can I be on the lookout for God in those unlikely places this week?
pray together. God, you have gathered us here today that we might hear this powerful affirmation of your great love. That there is nowhere we can go that you are not already present. There is no one that we meet with whom you are not already at work. That you loved us long before we knew you and you love every person in the world regardless of whether they know you or not. We have received this call and this challenge today to be more like your servant Paul who when faced with a city of people who worshipped in a way that deeply offended him did not respond with anger, with indignation, with condemnation, but with gentleness, with kindness, with love, and with invitation. How different our history would be if we had all followed his example. So today we approach your table confessing that we far too often have imagined that we have a monopoly on you. That you are waiting for us to take you places when that could not be further from the truth. As we confess this, we also, uh, we also acknowledge our need for your Holy Spirit to shape our eyes, to shape our ears, to shape our perspective so that we might know uh, that you are already at work everywhere and that we might see you and know you and, and know how to enter into those spaces, not as experts, but as students. We approach your table now where you invited those people who had such a poor grasp of who you are and your plans for the world. And we find in that invitation a comfort that you do not require us to be experts. You require us only to be faithful. And so in faith, we come to this table today and we receive these elements and we pray that they would be a spiritual food that nourishes our spirits, that stirs our imaginations, that help, helps us to see how you are present in a world that you invite us to love the way you love. We thank you for this meal. We thank you for the great privilege we have of, of sitting at your table. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And when the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Always, I want to thank those of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst for your faithfulness in that area. Uh, thank you for uh, enabling us to continue to do these things uh, week to week and to create these spaces. Uh, thank you also to our volunteers, uh, both our volunteers here in the building and some of our virtual volunteers, like Sonia, who preached this morning. Uh, thank you so much for continuing to help us create this space where we can encounter the Spirit together and be formed in the image of Jesus for the sake of the world around us. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. Uh, now, as you're going, uh, you know, a little bit of an assignment this week, Sonia's challenge for us from the beginning of the message to the end was to consider who those people are that we have been taught uh, have no access to God, right? Or who, uh, who are, you know, what, I, you know, in Paul's day, it was the, the pagans or the idolaters, you know, those people today that we would say um, have, no, have no access to God, don't know God, have no idea who God is, God is not at work among them. And to consider this challenge that Sonia gave us, that God is already present everywhere in the world. There are multiple places through the scriptures that 
affirm in the most beautiful way that every time we think God is not somewhere, God is already there ahead of us, present and working. And uh, the great call of the church is not to take God a bunch of places that God is not, but as Sonia reminded us, to, uh, to show up where God is already present and at work and, and learn how we can point out what God is already doing and join in with what God is already doing. So uh, I trust that in the, t- the, in the time of receiving the message today and in the, in the, in singing and then in the, the examine time, the Spirit has been communicating to you some places and some people uh, where you maybe were pretty sure God had not, was not already present. I just want to encourage you this week not to be afraid to go into those spaces with an open spirit and an open heart uh, to find that God is already present there and working in ways that I promise will be surprising and delightful because everywhere God is at work, God is bringing life and hope and joy uh, and new creation. So if you'd stand with me, I want to dismiss you with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, as you go, would you go into a world that is already brimming with the presence of God? Uh, Would you go with eyes, ears, spirits, and hearts open to find the God who is already at work? And may you be open to receiving God's call to join in to those spaces so that you too can be transformed even as you are an agent of transformation. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week.